This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty, ultra-strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Recorded live. More importantly, ethnic and religious pluralism serves external Jewish interests because Jews become just one of many ethnic groups. This results in the diffusion of political and cultural influence among the various ethnic and religious groups, and it becomes difficult or impossible to develop unified, cohesive groups of Gentiles united in their opposition to Judaism. Historically, major anti-Jewish movements have tended to erupt in societies that have been, apart from Jews, religiously and or ethnically homogenous. Conversely, one reason for the relative lack of anti-Jewism in America compared to Europe was that Jews did not stand out as a solitary group of religious nonconformists. It follows also that ethnically and religiously pluralistic societies are more likely to satisfy Jewish interests than are societies characterized by ethnic and religious homogeneity among Gentiles. Beginning with Horace Kalin, Jewish intellectuals have been at the forefront in developing models of the United States as a culturally and ethnically pluralistic society. Reflecting the utility of cultural pluralism in serving internal Jewish group interests in maintaining cultural separatism, Kalin personally combined his ideology of cultural pluralism with a deep immersion in Jewish history and literature, a commitment to Zionism and political activity on behalf of Jews in Eastern Europe. Kalin developed a polycentric ideal for American ethnic relationships, Kalin defined ethnicity as deriving from one's biological endowment, implying that Jews should be able to remain a genetically and culturally cohesive group while nevertheless participating in American democratic institutions. This conception that the United States should be organized as a set of separate ethnic cultural groups was accompanied by an ideology that relationships between groups would be cooperative and benign. Kalin lifted his eyes above the strife that swirled around him to an ideal realm where diversity and harmony coexist. Similarly, in Germany, the Jewish leader Moritz Lazarus argued in opposition to the views of the German intellectual Heinrich Trichke that the continued separateness of diverse ethnic groups contributed to the richness of German culture. Lazarus also developed the doctrine of dual loyalty, which became a cornerstone of the Zionist movement. Kalin wrote his 1915 essay partly in reaction to the ideas of Edward A. Ross. Ross was a Darwinian sociologist who believed that the existence of clearly demarcated groups would tend to result in between-group competition for resources. Higgins' comment is interesting because it shows that Kalin's romantic view of group coexistence 
were contradicted by the reality of between-group competition in his own day. Indeed, it is noteworthy that Kalin was a prominent leader of the American Jewish Congress. During the 1920s and 1930s, the AJ Congress championed group economic and political rights for Jews in Eastern Europe at a time when there was widespread ethnic tensions and persecution of Jews, despite the fears of many that such rights would merely exacerbate current tensions. The AJ Congress demanded that Jews be allowed proportional political representation as well as the ability to organize their own communities and preserve an autonomous Jewish national culture. The treaties with Eastern European countries and Turkey included provisions that the state provide instruction in minority languages and that Jews have the right to refuse to attend courts or other, other public functions on the Sabbath. Kalin's idea of cultural pluralism as a model for America was popularized among Gentile intellectuals by John Dewey, who in turn was promoted by Jewish intellectuals. If lapsed congressionalists like Dewey did not need immigrants to inspire them to press against the boundaries of even the most liberal of Protestant sensibilities, Dewey's kind were resoundingly encouraged in that direction by the Jewish intellectuals they encountered in urban academic and literary communities. Kalin's ideas have been very influential in producing Jewish self-conceptualizations of their status in America. This influence was apparent as early as 1915 among American Zionists, such as Louis D. Brandeis. Brandeis viewed America as composed of different nationalities whose free development would, quote, spiritually enrich the United States and would make it a democracy par excellence. Gale, 1989. These views became a hallmark of mainstream American Zionism, secular and religious alike, but Kalin's influence extended really to all educated Jews. Legitimizing the preservation of a minority culture in the midst of a majority's host society, pluralism functioned as intellectual anchorage for an educated Jewish second generation, sustained its cohesiveness and its most tenacious communal endeavors through the rigors of the Depression, and revived anti-Jewism through the shock of Nazism and the holohoax until the emergence of Zionism in the post-World War II years swept through American Jewry with a climactic redemption fervor of its own. Explicit statements linking immigration policy to a Jewish interest in cultural pluralism can be found among prominent Jewish social scientists and political activists in his review of Kalin's 1956 Cultural Pluralism and the American Idea, appearing in Congress Weekly, published by the AJ Congress, Joseph L. Blau noted that Kalin's view is needed to serve the cause of minority groups and minority cultures in this nation without a permanent majority. The implication being that Kalin's ideology of multiculturalism opposes the interests of any ethnic group in dominating America. The well-known author and prominent Zionist Maurice Samuel, writing partly as a negative reaction to the immigration law of 1924, wrote that, quote, if then the struggle between us, i.e. Jews and Gentiles, is ever to be lifted beyond the physical, your democracies will have to alter their demands for racial, 
spiritual and cultural homogeneity with the state. But it would be foolish to regard this as possibility as a possibility for the tendency of this civilization is in the opposite direction. There is a steady approach toward the identification of government with race instead of with the political state. Samuel deplored the 1924 legislation, and in the following quote, he develops the view that the American state as having no ethnic implications. We have just witnessed in America the repetition, in a particular form adapted to this country, of the evil farce to which the experience of many centuries has not yet accustomed us. If America had any meaning at all, it lay in the peculiar attempt to rise above the trend of our present civilization, quote, the identification of race with state. America was therefore the new world in this vital respect that the state was purely an ideal and nationality was identical only with acceptance of the ideal. But it seems now that the entire point of view was a mistaken one, that America was incapable of rising above her origins and the resemblance of an ideal nationalism was only a stage in the proper development of the universal Gentile spirit. Today, with race triumphant over ideal, anti-Jewism uncovers its fangs, and to the heartless refusal of the most elementary human right, the right of asylum, is added cowardly insult. We are not only excluded, but we are told in the unmistakable language of the immigration laws that we are an inferior people. Without the moral courage to stand up squarely to its evil instincts, the country prepared itself through its journalists by a long drought of vilification of the Jew, and when sufficiently inspired by the popular and scientific potions, committed the act. A congruent opinion is expressed by prominent Jewish social scientist and political activist Earl Raab, who remarks very positively on the success of American immigration policy in altering the ethnic composition of the United States since 1965. Raab notes that the Jewish community has taken a leadership role in changing the Northwest European bias of American immigration policy, and he has also maintained that one factor inhibiting anti-Jewism in the contemporary United States is that, quote, an increasing ethnic heterogeneity as a result of immigration has made it even more difficult for a political party or mass movement of bigotry to develop. Or more colorfully, the Census Bureau has just reported that about half of the American population will soon be non-white or non-European, and they will all be American citizens. We have tipped beyond the point where a Nazi Aryan party will be able to prevail in this country. We, i.e. Jews, have been nourishing the American climate of opposition to bigotry for about half a century. That climate has not yet been perfected, but the heterogeneous nature of our population tends to make it irreversible and makes our constitutional constraints against bigotry more practical than ever. Indeed, the primary objective of Jewish political activity after 1945 was to prevent the emergence of anti-Jew reactionary mass movements in the United States. Notes that American Jews are committed to cultural tolerance because of their belief, one firmly rooted in history, that Jews are safe only in a society acceptant of a wide range of attitudes and behaviors, as well as a diversity of religions and ethnic groups. It is this belief, for example, not approval of homosexuality, that leads an overwhelming majority of American Jews to endorse gay rights 
and who take a liberal stance on most other so-called social issues. Silberman's comment that Jewish attitudes are firmly rooted in history is quite reasonable. There has indeed been a tendency for Jews to be persecuted by a culturally and or ethnically homogenous majority that come to view Jews as a negative evaluated outgroup. Similarly, in listing the positive benefits of immigration, Diana Aviv, director of the Washington Action Office of the Council of Jewish Federations, states that immigration, quote, is about diversity, cultural enrichment, and economic opportunity for the immigrants. And in summarizing Jewish involvement in the 1996 legislative battles, a newspaper account stated that, quote, Jewish groups failed to kill a number of provisions that reflect the kind of political expediency that they regard as a direct attack on American pluralism. It is, it is noteworthy also that there has been a conflict between predominantly Jewish neoconservatives and predominantly Gentile paleoconservatives over the issue of third world immigration into the United States. Many of these neoconservative intellectuals had previously been radical leftists, and the split between the neoconservatives and their previous allies resulted in an intense internecine feud. Neoconservatives Norman Podhoritz and Richard John Newhouse reacted very neg negatively to an article by a paleoconservative concerned that such immigration would eventually lead to the United States being dominated by such immigrants. Other examples are neoconservatives Julianne Simon and Ben Wattenberg, both of whom advocate very high levels of immigration from all parts of the world, so that the United States will become what Wattenberg describes as the world's first universal nation. Based on recent data, Fetzger, 1996, reports that Jews remain far more favorable to immigration to the United States than any other ethnic group or religion. It should be noted as a general point that the effectiveness of Jewish organizations in influencing American immigration policy has been facilitated by certain characteristics of American Jewry. As Nuringer notes, Jewish influence on immigration policy was facilitated by Jewish wealth, education, and social status. Reflecting its general disproportionate representation in markers of economic success and political influence, Jewish organizations have been able to have a vastly disproportionate effect on United States immigration policy because Jews as a group are highly, highly organized, highly intelligent, and politically astute, and they were able to command a high level of financial, political, and intellectual resources in pursuing their political aims. Similarly, Hollinger notes that Jews were more influential in the decline of a homogenous Protestant Christian culture in the United States than Catholics because of their greater wealth, social standing, and technical skill in the intellectual arena. In the, arena, or in the area of immigration policy, the main Jewish activist organizations influencing immigration policy, the American Jewish Committee, was characterized by strong leadership, particularly Louis Marshall, internal cohesion, well-funded programs, sophisticated lobbying techniques, well-chosen non-Jewish allies, and good timing. In this regard, the Jewish success in influencing immigration policy is entirely analogous to their success in influencing the secularization of American culture. As is the case of American policy, the secularization of American culture is a Jewish interest because Jews have a perceived interest 
that America not be a homogenous Christian culture. Jewish civil rights organizations have had an historic role in the post-war development of American church-state law and policy. Unlike the effort to influence immigration, the opposition to a homogenous Christian culture was mainly carried out in the courts. The Jewish effort in this case was well-funded and was the focus of well-organized, highly dedicated Jewish civil service organizations, including the AJ Committee, the AJ Congress, and the Anti-Defamation League, ADL. It involved keen legal expertise both in the actual litigation but also in influencing legal opinion via articles in law journals and other forms of intellectual debate, including the popular media. It also observed a highly charismatic and effective leadership, particularly Leo Pfeiffer of the AJ Congress. No other lawyer exercised such complete intellectual dominance over a chosen area of law for so extensive a period as an author, scholar, public citizen, and above all, legal advocate who harnessed his multiple and formidable talents into a single force capable of satisfying all that an institution needs for a successful constitutional reform movement. That Pfeiffer, through an enviable combination of skill, determination, and persistence, was able in such a short period of time to make the church-state reform the foremost cause with which rival organizations associated the AJ Congress, illustrates well the impact that individual lawyers endowed with exceptional skills can have on the character and life of the organizations for which they work. As if to conform the extent to which Pfeiffer is associated with post-Everson constitutional development, even the major critics of the court's church-state jurisprudence during this period and modern doctrine of separatism, separationism rarely fail to make preference to Pfeiffer as the central force responsible for what they lament as the lost meaning of the Establishment Clause. Similarly, Hollinger notes the transformation of the ethno-religious demography of American academic life by Jews in the period from the 1930s to the 1960s, as well as the Jewish influence on trends toward the secularization of American society and it advancing an ideal of cosmopolitanism the pace of this influence was very likely influenced by immigration battles of the 1920s. Hollinger notes that the old Protestant establishment's influence persisted until the 1960s in large measure because of the Immigration Act of 1924. Held the massive immigration of Catholics and Jews continued at pre-1924 levels, the course of American history would have been different in many ways including one may reasonably speculate a more rapid diminution of Protestant cultural hegemony. Immigration restriction gave that hegemony a new lease of life. It is reasonable to suppose, therefore, that the immigration battles from 1881 to 1965 have been of momentous historical importance in shaping the contours of American culture in the late 20th century. The ultimate success of Jewish attitudes on immigration was also influenced by intellectual movements that collectively resulted in a decline of evolutionary and biological thinking in the academic world. Although playing virtually no role in the restrictionist position in the congressional debates on the immigration, 
which focused mainly on the fairness of maintaining the ethnic status quo. A component of the intellectual zeitgeist of the 1920s was the prevalence of evolutionary theories of race and ethnicity, particularly the theories of Madison Grant. In The Passing of the Great Race, Grant argued that the American colonial stock was derived from superior Nordic racial elements and that immigration of other races would lower the competence level of the society as a whole, as well as threaten democratic and republican institutions. Grant's ideas were popularized in the media at the time of the immigration debates and often provoked negative comments in Jewish publications such as the American Hebrew. The debate over group differences in IQ was also tied to the immigration issue. C.C. Brigham's study of intelligence among United States Army personnel concluded that Nordics were superior to Alpine and Mediterranean Europeans, and Brigham concluded that immigration should not only be restrictive but highly selective. In the foreword to Brigham's book, Harvard psychologist Robert M. Yerkes stated that the author presents not theories but facts. It behooves us to consider their reliability and meaning. For no one of us as a citizen can afford to ignore the menace of race deterioration or the evident relation of immigration to national progress and welfare. Nevertheless, as Samuelson points out, the drive to restrict immigration originated long before IQ testing came into existence, and restriction was favored by a variety of groups, including organized labor, for reasons other than those related to race and IQ including especially the fairness of maintaining the ethnic status quo in the United States. Moreover, although Brigham's IQ testing results did indeed appear in the statement submitted by the Allied Patriotic Societies to the House hearings, the role of IQ testing in the immigration debates has been greatly exaggerated. Indeed, IQ testing was never even mentioned in either the House Majority Report or the Minority Report. And there is no mention of intelligence testing in the act. Test results on immigration appear only briefly in the committee hearings and are then largely ignored or criticized. And they are brought up only once in over 600 pages of congressional floor debate, where they are subjected to further criticism without rejoinder. None of the major contemporary figures in testing were called to testify, nor were their writings inserted into the legislative record. It is also very easy to overemphasize the importance of theories of Nordic superiority as an ingredient of popular and congressional restrictionist sentiment. As Singerman points out, racial anti-Semitism was employed by only a handful of writers, and the Jewish problem was a minor preoccupation even among such widely published authors as Madison Grant or T. Lothrop Stoddard, and none of the individuals examined in Singerman's review, could be regarded as professional Jew-baiters or full-time propagandists against Jews, domestic or foreign. As indicated below, arguments related to Nordic superiority, including supposed Nordic intellectual superiority, played remarkably little role in congressional debates over immigration in the 1920s. The common argument of the restrictionists being that immigration policy should reflect equally the interests of all ethnic groups currently in the country. Nevertheless, it is probable that the decline in evolutionary biological theories of race and ethnicity facilitated the sea change in immigration policy 
brought about by the 1965 law. As Higgum notes, by the time of the final victory in 1965, which removed national origins and racial ancestry from immigration policy and opened up immigration to all human groups, the Boazian perspective of cultural determinationism and anti-biologism had become standard academic wisdom. The result was that it became intellectually fashionable to discount the very existence of persistent ethnic differences. The whole reaction deprived popular race feelings of a powerful ideological weapon. Jewish intellectuals were prominently involved in the movement to eradicate the racialist ideas of Grant and others. Indeed, even during the earlier debates leading up to the immigration bills of 1921 and 1924, restrictionists perceived themselves as to be under attack from Jewish intellectuals. In 1918, Prescott F. Hall, secretary of the Immigration Restrictionist League, wrote to Grant that, quote, what I wanted was the names of a few anthropologists of note who have declared in favor of the inequality of the races. I am up against the Jews all the time in the equality argument and thought perhaps you might be able to offhand to name a few beside Osborne whom I could quote in support. Grant also believed that Jews were engaged in a campaign to discredit racial research in the introduction in the 1921 edition of Passing of the Great Race, Grant complained that, quote, it is well nigh impossible to publish in the American newspapers any reflection upon criteria religious or races which are hysterically sensitive when not mentioned by name. The underlying idea seems to be that if publication can be suppressed, the facts themselves will ultimately disappear. Abroad conditions are fully as bad, and we have the authority of one of the most eminent anthropologists in France that the collection of anthropological measurements and data among French recruits of the outbreak of the Great War was prevented by Jewish influence, which aimed to suppress any suggestion of racial differentiation in France. Particularly important was the work of Columbia University and anthropologist France Boaz and his followers. Boaz's influence upon American social scientists in matters of race can hardly be exaggerated. He engaged in a lifelong assault on the idea that race was a primary source of the differences to be found in the mental and social capabilities of human groups. He accomplished his mission largely through his ceaseless, almost relentless articulation of the concept of culture. Boaz almost single-handedly developed in, the American, in America the concept of culture, which like a powerful solvent would in time expunge race from the literature of social science. Throughout this explication of Boaz's conception of culture and his opposition to a racial interpretation of human behavior, the central point has been that Boaz did not arrive at the position from a disinterested scientific inquiry into a vexed, if controversial, question. Instead, his idea derived from an ideological commitment that began in his early life and academic experiences in Europe and continued in America to shape his professional outlook. There is no doubt that he had a deep interest in collecting evidence and designing arguments that would rebuke or refute an ideological outlook 
racism, which he considered restrictive upon individuals and undesirable for society. There is a persistent interest in pressing his social values upon the profession and the public. There is evidence that Boaz strongly identified as a Jew and viewed his research as having important implications in the political and particularly the political arena and particularly in the area of immigration policy. Boaz was born in Prussia to a Jewish liberal family in which the revolutionary ideals of 1848 remained influential. Boaz developed a left liberal posture which is at once scientific and political and was intensely concerned with anti-Jewism from an early period in his life. Moreover, Boaz was deeply alienated from and hostile toward Gentile culture, particularly the cultural ideal of the Prussian aristocracy. For example, when Margaret Mead was looking for a way to persuade Boaz to let her pursue her research in the South Sea Islands, she hit upon a sure way of getting him to change his mind. I knew there was one thing that mattered more to Boaz than the direction taken by anthropological research. This was that he should behave like a liberal democratic modern man, not like a Prussian autocrat. The ploy worked because she had indeed uncovered the heart of his personal values. Boaz was greatly motivated by the immigration issue as it occurred early in the century. Notes that Boaz, me, Carl Degler notes that Boaz's professional correspondence reveals that an important motive behind his famous head measuring project in 1910 was his strong personal interest in keeping America diverse in population. The study, whose conclusions were placed into the congressional record by Representative Emanuel Seller during the debate on immigration restriction, concluded that the environmental differences consequent to immigration caused differences in head shape. At the time, head shape as determined by the Cephalic index was the main measurement used by scientists involved in racial differences research. Boaz argued that his research showed that all foreign groups living in favorable social circumstances had become assimilated to America in the sense that their physical measurement converged on the American type. Although he was considerably more circumspect regarding his conclusions in the body of his report, stated in his introduction that, quote, all fear of an unfavorable influence of South European immigration upon the body of our people should be dismissed. As a further indication of Boaz's ideological commitment to the immigration issue, Degler makes the following comment regarding one of Boaz's environmentalist explanations for mental differences between immigrant and native children. Quote, why Boaz chose to advance such an ad hoc interpretation is hard to understand until one recognizes his desire to explain in a favorable way the apparent mental backwardness of the immigrant children. Boaz and his students were intensely concerned with pushing an ideological agenda within the American anthropological profession. In this regard, it is interesting that Boaz and his associates had a much more highly developed sense of group identity a commitment to a common viewpoint, and an agenda to dominate the institutional structure of anthropology than did their opponents. The defeat of the Darwinians had not happened without considerable exhortation of every mother's son standing for the right, 
nor had it been accomplished without some rather strong pressure applied both to staunch friends and to the weaker brethren, often by the sheer force of Boaz's personality. By 1915, the Boazians controlled the American Anthropological Association and held a two-thirds majority on the executive board. By 1926, every major department of anthropology in the United States was headed by a student of Boaz, the majority of whom were Jewish. According to White, Boaz's most influential students were Ruth Benedict, Alexander Goldenmeiser, Melvin Herskovitz, Alfred Kreuber, Robert Louis Lowey, Margaret Mead, Paul Radin, Edward Sapphire, and Leslie Spear. All of this small, compact group of scholars gathered about their leader, where Jews well, were Jews with the exception of Krober, Benedict, and Mead. Indeed, Herskovitz, whose hagiography of Boaz qualifies as one of the most worshipful in intellectual history, noted that the four decades of the tenure of Boaz's professorship at Columbia gave a continuity to his research that per permitted him to develop students who eventually made up the greater part of the significant professional core of American anthropologists and who came to man and direct most of the major departments of anthropology in the United States. In their turn, they trained the students who have continued the tradition in which their teachers have trained. By the mid-1930s, the Boazian view of the cultural determination of human behavior had a strong influence on social scientists generally. The ideology of racial equality was an important weapon on behalf of opening immigration up to all human groups. For example, in a 1951 statement to Congress, the AJ Congress stated that the findings of science must force even the most prejudiced among us to accept as unqualifiedly as we do the law of gravity, that intelligence, morality, and character bear no, no relationship whatever to geography or place of birth. The statement went on to cite some of Boaz's popular writings on the subject as well as the writings of Boaz. Ashley Montague, perhaps the most visible opponent of the concept of race during this period, Montague, whose original name was Israel Ehrenberg, theorized that humans were innately cooperative but not innately aggressive, and there is a universal brotherhood among humans. And in 1952, another Boaz, Margaret Mead, testified before the President's Commission on Immigration and Naturalization that, quote, all human beings from all groups of people have the same potentialities. Our best anthropological evidence today suggests that the people of every group have about the same distribution of potentialities. Another witness stated that the executive board of the American Anthropological Association had unanimously endorsed the proposition that all scientific evidence indicates that all peoples are inherently capable of acquiring or adapting to our civilization. By 1965, Senator Jacob Javits confidently announced to the Senate during the debate on the immigration bill that both the dictates of our consciousness as well as the precepts of socio sociologists tell us that immigration as it exists in the national or origins quota system is wrong and without any basis in reason or fact, for we know better than to say that one man is better than another because of the color of his skin. The intellectual revolution and its translation into public policy has been completed. Note, since the publication of this article, I came across the following through Hugh Davis Graham's 
Collision Course, The Strange Convergence of Affirmative Action and Immigration Policy in America. Most important for the content of immigration reform, i.e. anti-restriction, the driving force at the core of the movement, reaching back to the 1920s, were Jewish organizations long active in opposing racial and ethnic quotas. These included the American Jewish Congress, the American Jewish Committee, the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith, and the American Federation of Jews from Eastern Europe. Jewish members of the Congress, particularly representatives from New York and Chicago, had maintained steady but largely ineffective pressure groups against the national origins quotas since the 1920s. Following the shock of the Holohoax, Jewish leaders had been especially active in Washington in furthering immigration reform. To the public, the most visible evidence of the immigration reform drive was played by Jewish legislative leaders, such as Representative Seller and Senator Jacob Javits of New York. Less visible but equally important were the efforts of key advisors on presidential and agency staffs. These included senior policy advisors such as Julius Edelson and Harry Rosenfield in the Truman administration, Maxwell Robb in the Eisenhower White House and presidential aide Meyer Feldman, Assistant Secretary of State Abba Schwartz, and Deputy Attorney General Norbert Schley in the Kennedy-Johnson administration. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com.